That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to another weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. As I said, this is one of the clubhouse rooms that we did this week. In fact, it's the one from last night. What happened is Chris convinced me that I should split the two rooms into their own individual episodes. So I'm releasing this one from Friday 1st, and tomorrow I'll post the one we did last Monday night. Topics for this episode include Slack getting into social audio, Microsoft maybe buying Discord and why, what the heck is BitClout? The great Brady Dale from Coindesk helped us with that one, and more explication of my rant concerning the whole medium situation. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you heard nothing. <laughs> It's a professional outfit, everybody. Just, just bear with us. It'll be great uh, if it happens. Oh, I have to do a tweet too. Also, be like, hey, it's that. Well, actually, once you get your shit together, then I'll, I'll tweet it out. I gotta mm. figure out why that's not working. All right, here's what let's do. Okay. While I'm thinking about this, <laughs> um, let's uh, oh, screw it. Chris, yes. <laughs> the first thing you want to talk about is Slack. Yeah, and Slack is uh, having, in theory, uh, a better beta than this. But um, it's not just that they they want to do uh, uh, rooms like Clubhouse. Wait, you want me to introduce stories. the show? I have to introduce the show. Oh yeah, go ahead. Okay, hold on. Well, I'm going to tweet it. If we're, if we're, fuck it, we're going to do it live. I'm just going to say, yeah. this is happening now. That's what I'm going to say in my tweet. This is happening now. Okay. Um, okay, well, we're just going to go. We're going to do it fucking live. And we may or may not end up getting a recording out of this or not, which I forgot. Oh, to the recording is happening. That's the oh, one thing that I know is working. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so we're just going to have clips. All right, well, we can yeah. just talk about it. Yeah. Um, and if you have the script, you know, if you want to like, you know, script it. from I that, you it. can do that too. Yeah. All right, well, anyways... Welcome, everybody. Uh, today is Friday, and we are here for the Tech Meme Ride Home experience, which you are getting a very raw, uncut version, um, where Brian and I are mostly just shooting the shit about today's uh, top tech headlines, which typically he is covering in his podcast, um, which, of course, you can kind of follow on techmeme.com, or you can go to tech.supercast.tech, subscribe, yada, yada. Basically, Brian picks, I think it's, I don't know, five to seven segments and talks about them kind of like at a high level in terms of what the coverage is. And we go deeper um, in terms of what these things mean and what's going on with them. Um, we're hoping today to actually, and let's see, uh, I think we'll probably, maybe in the midway, we'll bring Brady up. Does that sound about right? To talk about uh, BitClout? Yeah. Like that if, could just if, like spiral if, if out. If he's willing. If he's willing. Okay. If he's willing. Yeah. So we might, we might be getting into that in a little bit. Um, but today's general topics, I'll sort of give you like the overview, and then uh, Brian can kind of recap, and then we'll go into it. First, I might I might read oh. it live at this point. Oh, 
I know. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Like, maybe that's going to be, yeah. you know, yeah. that, that, I, I got the that. script up. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. So, so then why don't we just try that? So, so today um, I will remind you guys that this is just a big experiment to try to tease out this interesting dynamic between pre-recorded audio, live audio, conversations, interactivity, the whole, the whole gamut. Um, and so typically what we'll do is we'll take the clips from the podcast and then we'll play those live and then we'll sort of go into a commentary. The way I think about it is it's kind of like blog posts, like audio blogs where, you know, the, the blog is kind of a snippet or a segment of the podcast. And then we sort of banter and have a conversation about it. But since we can't figure out the recording today, fuck it, we'll, we'll do it live. And Brian's actually going to just read the segments that he does on his show and we'll go from there. So you want to start with Slack? Yes. And again, the recording is working well. It's okay. the clips that are not working well. So I'm going to do the clips. So uh, this would have been the story number three from the show today, um, which is that um, last night on Josh Constein's uh, clubhouse room, press club, uh, Stuart Butterfield was on there and he said that number one, Slack would introduce audio messaging and a clubhouse-like feature that would allow users to drop into the room without an invitation. So what I said on the show today was clubhouse features sound completely obvious to me in terms of if you're a, uh, a work uh, place chat sort of thing, like it's like you're, j- hey, let's grab this um, meeting room over here and let's talk about X, Y, and Z. Uh, it's the sort of jump in sort of um, obvious collaboration uh, tool that when we, when we've talked about on the show before, could clubhouse and audio rooms be sort of um, a table stakes for things that, you know, any sort of um, platform could have eventually, this makes a ton of sense to me. The other thing that Stuart said was that uh, Slack was going to get a, Finally, stories. I don't know what took them so long, seeing as how, again, these are table stakes for everyone <laughs> to have stories. Um, and uh, I don't know. It was interesting that that happened on Clubhouse last night with uh, Josh's show, where apparently his uh, his new boss, Brett Taylor, at... Um, <laughs> Uh, at Salesforce, Salesforce. <laughs> didn't know that, that this was a product Surprise. that was coming down the road. But um, so, yes, um, Chris, what do you think about Slack getting Clubhouse features? And also, I didn't even mention like sort of um, uh, Telegram features where you could like just leave, uh, I guess, away messages and things like that. Oh, uh, interesting. Wait, when, are you saying that Slack is getting Telegram features? I'm confused. There's a whole so, pot right. of things that are happening here. Yeah, help me out. Yes. Um, the original function would be uh, Butterfield said that a feature for leaving audio messages similar to a function available in uh, messaging apps like Telegram is currently available as a beta test. Then he said that Slack would soon offer the audio drop-in clubhouse feature and coming soon would be the stories feature. Okay. So I take it you didn't actually listen to the show, right? Uh, uh, no, I did not. <laughs> okay. I actually did. Um, so I, I did a different type of the homework for this, uh, to, for the show today. And actually, I, you know, I gotta say, I was, I was very impressed. Like there was a lot of really good stuff, uh, in that episode, um, in the, the press club show. And I mean, the content, you know, in and of itself, just about remote work. I mean, Matt Mullenweg was in there. Um, 
Zainab was in there. There was a bunch of folks, you know, who were just kind of like talking about the future of, of work and remote work, distributed work, what works, what doesn't, you know, are things going back to the way that they were are, you know, and just lots of like really, really good stuff from people who are on the cusp of bringing people back. And I, I think the thing that was, I'll just say as a meta commentary about that conversation, the thing that I don't think quite had registered for me yet, even though we're how many, you know, tens of millions of doses into like the vaccine now is that Salesforce is planning on opening up their offices like relatively soon. Mm -hmm. Now they may be back at 10% capacity, but the reality is people are going back to, or at least we'll have the option to go back sooner than I really kind of felt emotionally prepared for the idea of, you know, getting back on that highway, you know, that with all the congestion and all the rest. Sort of and thing. I've, I've been trying to keep track of that. Like there, there's been more news today in terms of, I think Facebook is coming back to a 10% yep. or maybe it was Facebook sort of thing. Heard. Yep, yeah. Exactly. Um, but it, uh, right. And it was, it was Microsoft um, the day before. So like, yes, uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it's fun to keep track of these things because it's like, it's like when you see um, on Twitter or on whatever message app, like your friends mm-hmm. get uh, announcing that they've gotten a jab. <laughs> it's sort of right. like, even if you haven't gotten one, you're, you're like, all right, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Yep, yep, yeah, exactly. So like, I think that that was one of the things that was a little bit more, I don't know, just like, oh, right, like, you know, shake my brain. Like, this is actually gonna, you know, we're gonna be back in this other world very quickly. And there's gonna be a whole lot to like, almost like catch up on. And it's gonna be a little bit confusing for a little while, but we are at least, you know, like we used to track the openings and closings of Apple stores as like the bellwether of like how the pandemic was going. And I feel like we're now moving beyond that. Um, And I I suppose I can partially say that since I did travel to, you know, Miami and I was, I was there before the spring break riots broke out. And I sort of like saw what, you know, the shit show was that was happening, but clearly people are like, I'm done with this. I'm moving on. Like, I don't care about this fucking virus. Like, you know, whatever. And so the fact that, I don't know, all these things are lining up is very interesting, but all of this is in the context of trying to assess what, behaviors, technologies, advances are going to stick around, what are going to continue to be built out, what are going to be added to these tools of remote work. And so what Stuart was saying, you know, and I don't know, I, he, he has this, um, what feels like this great sort of just pragmatic wisdom in the way that he talks about product where, and I guess, you know, it's funny because I sort of tweeted about this feature when I saw the, uh, the mention of it this morning where, you know, Slack's version of Clubhouse should be called All Hands um, because it, it feels as though the future of so many different companies will be or will have Clubhouse-style interactions and dynamics for bringing people together in these remote environments. And so if people are you know, akin to using Zoom and it's a little bit more ritualistic, um, I just it, it feels like some of the things that they were saying was that one, that when they've done some surveys with Salesforce employees in particular, there seems to be a preference for being in the office on Wednesdays and Thursdays. So Wednesday may be the new Monday, essentially is what they were saying, um, which I think is, 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 is an interesting thought. The other thing that Brett was saying was that there needs to be more intentionality and thought given to virtual meetings or remote meetings specifically. And this was something I hadn't heard before, but it seems like maybe it might become a thing, which is whether it's a, a, what do you say, like one camera or no cameras or multi-camera meeting? In other words, there may be, you know, we used to do phone calls, of course, for, for, for phone or for, for meetings, but 
in this new world, for some people, like having the camera on is just like a no go. You know, whether they've got kids at home, you know, with school or like whatever it is, um, you know, the, the the return to some sort of normalcy is is going to be probably in fits and starts, and it's going to not be, uh, you know, the future is here, it's just not distributed evenly yet. Um, that's going to happen, I think, post pandemic, and so there will be people who go back to the office or go back to work. And you will have to be very intentional about the time that you schedule with the people around you and the people that you work with to say, what are your needs and what are your capabilities? And in this meeting that I want to hold, I can't just make an assumption or impose what my preferences are on this meeting. I actually kind of need to get a sense for the people who are there and what they're able to provide. So that level of thoughtfulness is going to require software, I think, to facilitate that. And so you'll see new types of meetings and emergent phenomenon occur so that there isn't this, what, what I'd be worried about is that people fall out of step or out of line with their teammates because they're not able to be as online or as available as other people are, whether that's in the office or not, whether it's asynchronous or not. And so the fact that Slack is moving in this direction to provide for people to provide more, I, you know, the way that I used to think about this, the way I used to talk about it was continuous partial attention. And in a similar way, we're moving into a world of sort of sim- continuous partial uh, presence. And so stories is a way for colleagues to kind of keep each other up to date in terms of what they're doing or what's going on. So for example, you know, on a Friday afternoon, your boss wants everyone to like, you know, come and meet up or whatever, but you just saw this morning that one of your colleagues decided to like take the day off and, you know, go to the lake with the kids and they posted that to their stories. That becomes a signifier that allows you to say, actually boss, like it doesn't make sense for us to meet because one of our core teammates has decided to go do something else. So that See, type of communication this, becomes this is right. This is why you're the product guy, because <laughs> okay. all all I see is stories, and I'm like, yeah, that's dumb. Everyone's doing stories, um, but right, uh, that that makes so much sense to me. And also, in the like, it, all of the products that they just announced, it, in what you're just saying, makes so much yeah. sense to me in terms of like being the distributed workforce sort of thing. Yeah, and I, I think like what I took away from you know Stuart talking about clubhouse style products. Uh, or, or features rather showing up in Slack, you know, is that we need to think differently about kind of like what the space of Clubhouse is and also what the competition around formats is. I think there was a time when you could get sort of upset with Instagram implementing stories from Snap and, and kind of be like, oh, they're stealing like, you know, their mojo and like Snap should be the only one that can like have that format. And what I think has happened is that we've moved beyond that point. It's sort of like, you know, if you're in office, Maybe you have A14 and A11 and eight and a half by 11 paper. And it's just like, whatever. It's a bunch of different cuts of the same basic source material, but these things are used for slightly different purposes and people learn to use those different formats for slightly different applications. And it doesn't really make sense anymore. If these social platforms become places that people hang out and they spend their time to be so covetous of these slight variations in interfaces. I mean, I think, you know, it's perfectly fine and reasonable to, you know, give credit where credit's due in terms of evolving uh, sort of paradigms and patterns in these spaces. But to, to suggest that Slack is, is merely copying Clubhouse, I think, undermines the amount of thought that Slack is actually going to have to put into this product to adapt it to a more professional yeah. context and environment. Right? Yeah. So. I guess like, and and I suppose I'm also responding to your point about, oh, like, you know, Slack adding stories, that's dumb. I think there are plenty of dumb implementations of stories without a doubt. You know, I think LinkedIn is probably one of the more, I don't know, just obnoxious 
places for stories to exist because the interaction between people who are publishing, you know, it's largely a self-promotional, I'm a guru, I'm a ninja kind of environment versus smaller teams where there's a need to kind of stay in touch with each other. And the story's format, because it was an expiring format as opposed to a feed-based format where there's persistence, was all about staying in the moment, staying on the edge of what's about to happen and keeping in touch with a smaller group of people. To me, that's what the germ or like the kind of concept of the stories format really was on Snap. And that's why Instagram had to adopt that format because Instagram became, you know, what you did two or three days ago, you know, in your finely posed, you know, gallery and, of, of, you know, your, your life's trophies. And it was losing the resonance of, you know, raw, unvarnished, authentic content. And so that's why they had to go in that direction. So again, like what I think is so interesting about Slack moving away from everything being about text. I mean, even their other feature that they're, they just launched, you know, somewhat haphazardly uh, for emailing, I'm using the word email, which I'm sure they would hate, but like emailing between different Slack instances, you know, is, is almost like a pragmatic response that just says, you know what, we're just going to like open up the floodgates and allow people to communicate using a bunch of different formats. And we're going to learn from the best and adopt the ones that work and, and adapt them to, you know, this distributed work context. That, that's what I think is actually happening. Um, I'm going to do a really uh, gross seg here because I want to I want to do a, our our next segment to, just so we can get to it quick, um, and also because I want to see if we can get the audio in re- right here. Um, so hopefully this will be uh, segging to Microsoft buying Discord, which is another strategy play. Uh, here yes, we go. Yes. Nope. Sounds like those segments are not working. So I think, Brian, you're going to have to read this one live. Come back, Brian. Come back. We need you. Okay, you're back. That did not okay, work. Back. That did not work. Wait. All right. Well, I just heard myself. Yeah. Oh, well, but I don't think it's working. You know what? You should just, no. read, it. just read it. Let's do this one live today. Uh, well, this is Tuesday. So... Tuesday would be um, talking about how. Uh, what are we talking about? <laughs> uh, well, we're talking about Microsoft possibly acquiring Discord. There was a specific yes. part, though. I believe this was in today's clip about how Satya has a view of the future. Mm. I thought that part was really useful. If you can find that yes. part. Yes. Uh, okay. Fun for for me again, real quick. <laughs> Um, yes, because it's it's from the long reads uh, oh, from yeah, yeah, today. Right. Yep, yep. Um, which is why I'm looking for it. So, all right. In theory, um, because of the the story of Microsoft um, potentially uh, acquiring Discord came up earlier in the week, and we're like, what? And then there's been more reporting on it that is like this could be serious, and then. Um, the Bloomberg it like piece it's only amplified. It's it's become yes, more no, serious. Like it's exactly. Happened. And so here's the Bloomberg piece, and I'm going to quote from it exactly. Um, the answer in the uh, why would Microsoft do this is the question. The answer and Chief Executive Officer Sachin Nadella's mind is clear, and this is quoting Sachin: "Creation, creation, creation," which to me sounds like developers, developers, developers. <laughs> 
the next 10 years, this is quoting Sacha again, is going to be as much about creation as it is about consumption and about the community around it, so it's not creating alone. If the last 10 years had been about consumption, we're shopping more, we're browsing more, we're binging more. There is creation behind every one of those, but I see that phenomenon being much more democratized, end quote. And so, they continue for Nadella, the next decade of growth in cloud computing and internet use will be defined not by people watching and buying, but by those who are generating and exchanging their own content in different thriving groups. Nadella is eager to control some of the means of production, end quote. So yeah, this, that's as good I, as playing a clip. It, it, honestly, I think you should just do that for the rest of the show. So, <laughs> yeah, fine. for sure. Okay, um, you're yeah. more reliable than the technology is at this point. However, for sure, uh, I thought that clip was so. Uh, I don't know. There was like something deep in that. You know, it's like one of those moments where you realize, okay, now what has been going on like for some period of time with Microsoft is starting to like really add up and make sense. Now, I don't know if. You know, Sacha has like, you know, a 10 or a 20 year sort of plan or vision. But I do remember a couple of years ago where Microsoft had, you know, one of those Nokia style, uh, you know, f- future vision like types of things or whatever. And I'm sure the, the HoloLens was in there and a bunch of weird esoteric, you know, products that don't really make sense for normal people. But um, in this case, I think that's one of my that's one of my favorite um, um, uh, CESs. I, I went to the last one where it was Balmer. Where it was, it was the era when, um, um, what was the, it was the HoloLens era, or, or it was uh-huh. the, the era after, yeah. And um, it was all about how um, it was going to be like that sort of virtual reality stuff and things like that. And um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm looking for the tweet, but like since, <laughs> since Sacha took over uh-huh. um, Microsoft, they're up. It's five hundred percent. Damn, it, it's it's almost six hundred percent, and I, I can't find the tweet, but it, it is more than five hundred percent. I trust me. Go on. Wow. Okay. Yes. Well. So, I there was a period, you know, probably early in, uh, you know, Sacha's tenure, where I was skeptical about Microsoft's future. I certainly feel like I battled Microsoft in like the mid aughts uh, with the launch of Firefox, and Microsoft was definitely the evil kind of enemy, and. I don't know, Sacha just, anyways, the point about acquiring Discord and also their efforts to acquire Pinterest and their efforts, they acquired Bethesda, which is probably different. That's the whole Xbox thing. But the point about groups and the point about groups adjacent to Microsoft Teams and the point about the future of work and I would say, you know, young people in particular and digital natives, all of that implies a need to win and curry favor and to be where those, like that generation like lives and hangs out. So discord is that place discord is, Oh, GitHub is probably the, okay. So, so I would say if you put together GitHub discord and Pinterest and you kind of, you know, put them in a blender and, you know, put, I don't know, you don't flambe in a blender, but imagine like, you know, something like that. And you mix these things all up together. You start to have the contours of an interesting like strategy around building, creating, and then uh, curating in small groups of sort of conversational like interactions. Um, and really, I mean, I guess it's not too dissimilar from like the Facebook playbook where it's like you're buying attention, you're buying activity, you're buying the real estate that people are spending their time in. And that is unusual for Microsoft 
which you know used to, I think, sort of be more on the we're going to buy basic technology, but instead they're buying whole parcels of land, you know, with these ant colonies of humans, you know, built in them, where there's all sorts of behavior and activities that are going on, and they're creating a whole new, I don't know, like Microsoft land that I, I guess if I just like you know sort of zoom out seems way more smart than anything that Google has been doing lately. And I know I'm sort of going out of left field thinking of like Google here, but like having worked on Google's social products, I'm kind of wondering like, where is Google in the social world in the future? Well, well, that's interesting that you say that because I'm assuming you heard me question. Uh, I had heard from people that the reason that Google is even doing um, cloud gaming is, is to justify their investment in cloud computing, which they're behind on. And, and I, I did an open uh, ask this week for people to uh, uh, in, enlighten me in terms of the economics of that. But also at the same time, um, no, I don't know. You, you don't know, you don't have any insight on that at all. No, no, no. Sorry. Let, let, let me, let me, let me clarify your point and then refute your point, which is, okay, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> that I do believe, okay. So there are two, two sets of behaviors that I think you can immediately sort of tie back to economic realities or necessities. One is that Apple being in the Silicon business means that Apple needs to have more products that consume more of Apple Silicon in order for their unit price to go down. Right? So Apple needs to figure out how to build more and more products that have more and more CPUs in them that are made by Apple. Okay. Like strategically put, uh, in a similar way, you know, Tesla needs to eventually have more products that require more batteries because of all their battery tech. They need to basically have you know, their unit price go down. Just like Google sort of like, you know, needs more websites to add on Google Analytics you know, so, they can run, you know, so they can have a better view of like the advertising world and they can have a better auction for that. So once these companies dig into a certain technology stack, then they need to find customers for that. And the point that you're making about the Google Cloud or Amazon Cloud or Microsoft Cloud and Azure services, which I think was the point that you were making, is a reasonable one. In other words, Microsoft needs to find more customers to put Azure on. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's true from, again, like, you know, they can reduce their costs by having more people taking advantage of it. But, like, if you bought the company, they're not really paying for Azure, right? Because they're you. So that doesn't really seem to make that much sense to me. Um, can uh, I can I tell you what the smart people that, yes, please, uh, that are smarter than that, me. That, yes. that that reached reached out to me after I said sure. that was that like Brian, you're underestimating how much it is when you uh, you're at a conference or you're the salesperson that shows up to a company that can have this as like a sales like look we're doing this with X Y and Z uh, right uh. and so that what where I was saying this is you need these number of bytes going through to justify your investment on it. Yep. They're like, that's not it at all. Right. Okay. It's more like this is IBM showing up at a, at, you know, a, a, an old school company and being like, look, we did this uh, for this and this and this, and we can do this for you too. And that is as valuable as anything. Else. So, so basically the, the, the concept there is that these are marquee products that essentially demonstrate the power of the Microsoft cloud um, and prove, and that's enough for anyone. Okay, that's interesting. I, since I don't work in software sales, I don't, I, I don't have an intuitive vibe about that. But, uh, and, and here's the reason: 
Because it seems to me that I could justify or come up with sort of like a strategy for Microsoft's future when it comes to, you know, whether it's building out the future of, you know, Bing, let's say, or advertising services or subscription services by buying up these really valuable properties. And again, you know, putting Pinterest in that, you know, uh, place, GitHub, like, I thought it was very interesting, you know, when GitHub ended up with Microsoft. Like, that was something I never saw coming. I mean, first of all, given that, you know, Microsoft shadow over open source for, you know, a generation, and then clearly Satya comes in and says, it's not about Microsoft, it's not about open source, it's about how software gets built, and it's about uh, buying the place where engineers and developers spend their time. And maybe there's, you know, some, I don't know, some splash that occurs onto the Azure, you know, marketing side, but it just seemed like, Microsoft wanted to be at the center of what was going on there and to buy the team that had built that thing up. Right. And if we're taking such at his word, that is creators. Yep. That is um, literally what I just quoted from. And right, right. Exactly. Like, I can see that. I can see that. Like, that, Zuckerberg, that's Zuckerberg, strategically smart. Zuckerberg has said the same thing, right? The future of Facebook is about small groups. And I just think that it's, it's really about, I don't know being the place, you know, owning a lot of that stuff. And so, again, just to be clear what Brian and I are talking about, we're trying to sort of read the tea leaves on why Microsoft would want to buy Discord, why Discord would be relevant for their long-term strategy, and what it would mean, well, I mean, I can't even say what it would mean for Discord, but uh, trying to understand whether the motivation for this is one that relates to Azure services or whether it really relates to a product strategy around activity and around social and around being relevant, frankly, um, in building software for people who are spending more and more their time in virtual environments, right? Like they couldn't buy Slack. Slack was clearly off the table, even though I think Microsoft might've tried to buy them too. Um, and so when they instead, took a run at Pinterest. Yes. Yeah. Well, so, but, but, but like in terms of these group, um, you know, chat contexts, you know, that have huge amounts of engagement, Twitch is off the table because Amazon owns it, Right. And so if Microsoft wants that, you know, they have Teams, but Teams is largely an enterprise product. You know, they want to go, I, I don't know, it's not really down market, but more towards the consumer space. Um, and so anyways, that'd be interesting. I, if Discord rebuffs them, I'm not sure exactly what that will well, mean. I don't know if they'll be, this is one of those moments for you, right? Where it's like, this is like their Snapchat moment where they decide not to get bought out by the behemoth and they, yes. they stay independent and do their own thing. And, and frankly, before we leave this, yeah. I said I think I said this uh, when I introduced the idea earlier this week. Doesn't ten billion dollars to you, given the clubhouse moment, given the <laughs> fact that um, that uh, uh, audio is one of the hot things right now? There's no way ten billion dollars is going to be enough, don't yeah. you think? Like I, yeah. I think I said something along the lines of like, if they could go public right now, they'd probably go public yeah. at thirty. $30 billion or something. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that's a, it's a really good point. I, 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 which, I mean, even, you know, to talk about like numbers at that scale is, is kind of ridiculous, but on the other hand, yes, that is where things are. And it turns out it's really hard to build things that have value, that have engagement, that are sustainable. Um, and you've got to like pay back the investors and like all that stuff. So there's sort of a cascade of pressures that would suggest that discord should stay private or, or not private, but not be bought out. Um, however, the one, or one of the things that might motivate them to do so, which I think is very similar to what, you know, the calculation that uh, Mikey and Kevin made with Instagram was look like 
do we really want to build out all the same infrastructure that Facebook already has? Or do we want to focus on products and just make use of Facebook's uh, global infrastructure so we can move faster? And from a Discord perspective, they could be like, here's how much it's going to cost to continue to run our services. And I don't know if Discord is built on AWS or on Azure already, um, but whatever they're built on, I'm sure their bills are pretty expensive. And so they've got to look at you know, the, the technology costs of building their own you know, cloud global infrastructure or partnering with or being acquired by one of the big cloud providers. So that may be a piece of this, especially you know, depending on what Discord... Actually, you know what? One thing that I'll, that, I'll, that I'll point out that sort of just reminded me of something is the way in which Discord has tried to pivot itself towards broader community appeal. I think if you go to discord.com slash communities or something, they've really tried to move away from it. I don't think they've done it very successfully from a marketing perspective to move towards people using Discord for all sorts of communities. It's, it's kind of like they want to be the live chat conversation platform for like what Reddit sort of could become, you know, if it moved away from its asynchronous roots. And that to me, again, speaks to exactly Sacha's vision for the future. And so if they're aligned in that, then it would kind of just make sense economically, strategically, product-wise for Discord to take the buyout and just like, you know, sprint ahead. Uh, Chris, mm. uh, do you want to reset a little bit, not to sure, use sure. that term, but uh, I, I'd like to do the, the bit cloud next, but um, okay. just reset. Yeah, if he's willing, okay, and I, sure. I can set it up. Uh, but but reset and uh, yep, totally. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, so again, it is Friday. Um, for all of you who've lost track of time, but uh, this is the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience, where Brian and I basically go through a number of the stories that he has covered on his podcast, the Tech Meme Ride Home Show, which is a daily podcast covering the most interesting tech news of the day. We pick a few of the stories that he covered, and then we go real deep um, and try to put these things into both historical context, product context, and just kind of like make sense of like what's going on beyond what you're reading in the headlines. Um, and so, so far today, we've covered Slack and some of their adoption of social audio features. We've just talked about Discord, possibly being acquired by Microsoft. Um, and now we're going to talk about BitClout. And thankfully, Brady is up here. Um, and Brady, Brady. Uh, hey, I'm I'm going to introduce it, so you don't have to introduce it. Are okay. you willing to talk about this? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So um, I actually didn't do BitClout the whole week, uh, and then I did it as a weekend long read, and I, I uh, referenced um, something from Axios, something from TechCrunch, but then also a piece of yours was referenced. So I'm going to read a little bit. Um, from uh, the Axios piece. And then um, if Chris wants to talk about it first, because I believe he's already on there. And, I, and now apparently I'm on there too. Uh, and I, I bought, bought some, some of, of you Chris. today, by the way. Oh, and I bought some of you. I own right, you. So oh, we you own ready? each other. You ready? Yeah. Okay. okay, let's do it. So this is, quote, this is quoting from Axios. All right. BitClout takes the profiles of popular Twitter personalities and ascribes a dollar value to their output. Participants can then buy and sell various creator coins with Bitcoin and ideally profit. And, and with Bitcoin, uh, we, we should come back to that because you can only put it in, can't get it out. Um, at the top of the pack is Elon Musk. A run-in-the-mill crypto influencer is fetching around $500. Elon Musk is uh, commanding $70,000 per token. So essentially, you're uh, uh, ascribing a token to each person. 
Um, and then it's, we should point out, hugely controversial because um, certain people are like, well, no one gave anyone permission to put me or Chris or Brady on the blockchain. And um, uh, let me kick it to Chris first. Chris, because you and I have uh, like we've done NFTs and stuff together. Yeah. When did you get on? When did you get on this? Because you didn't tell me about it. <laughs> I, I think I did, but it was probably one of those things where I was like, "Oh, there's Messina again," you know, doing whatever. Um, I, oh God, how did I find out about it? You know, it's been such a weird journey that, and I was traveling this last week that there were just like moments where I'd kind of like see something happen or see something on Twitter, and then I'd kind of like jump over to like. And it's at bitcloud.com. Um, and in the beginning, like in the early, early part, you'd go and there was just this like red, or I'm sorry, there was a black kind of page, like all black. And then like this cryptic red countdown or something and text. And then like you had to get like the password from someone. It was all super sketch. But on the other hand, I was like, hey, you know what? Like here's an opportunity to like to get in this thing and to figure out what it is. And the, the concept is is kind of, curious to me. And so the, the whole, I think, idea and why I was, I don't know, why I'm excited by, or at least mm, excited isn't the right word. There's, there's some sort of mm, exacerbation or kind of perturbation. How about that? I'm perturbed. I'm perturbed by it in some way. It could be positive or negative. I don't know. I'm just affected. Um, and it's, it's, it's that, you know, given that the NFT hype is you know still ongoing and there's some really interesting things and dynamics that are happening there around ascribing artificial scarcity to the digital marketplace now we're financializing humans and of course we have a horrible history of that you know long term but nonetheless there are a number of efforts that have come out where you can kind of invest in someone's future potential there are schools i think I don't know if it's alt school or one of them where essentially they'll give you a free education, but then they, they take 10% of your earnings for life or whatever. Is that, is that Lambda? Lambda? Lambda. Maybe? Thank you. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So there are some ideas around financializing people and their future potential, but nothing that is so kind of on the nose and so straightforward. And the other thing about it, of course, is just the, the, the story is, God, it's weird. And, and I'm sure, you know, Brady can, can dig into this a little bit more and help us understand this, but you know, you've got a bunch of pretty prominent VCs, um, you know, who are either in the crypto space or crypto adjacent. I mean, even Sequoia supposedly uh, has invested in this, and I don't know if any of this has been confirmed. But there's a slide deck. Andreessen investors, right? Andreessen's uh, crypto. Uh, yeah, listen, Mike Arrington, You know, like yeah, exactly. So there's a bunch of folks who are in this, um, but it's it's not launched yet. It's supposed to launch this coming Tuesday, and again, you can buy. So so the thing that's most interesting about it is that if you get in early. You can buy these, these creator coins and there's only a certain number that are minted. And then the price basically goes up on a bond curve. And so if you buy someone early and then they become famous later on, then you've actually potentially made a bunch of money because their coins become more in demand, the more successful or prominent they become. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. 
That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Octa-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. Let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a t-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most t-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, Cuts, has finally changed that. Cuts t-shirts are such high-quality, wrinkle-free, and so buttery soft that you can look like you're dressing up even when you're dressing down. Yeah, you heard that. Wrinkle-free. You never have to substitute comfort for fashion ever again. If you see me in a t-shirt, it's likely one from Cuts. I'm also a huge fan of their AO5 pocket pants, the right sort of step up from jeans without going all the way into dress pants, like literally my ideal Venn diagram of professional looking but comfortable feeling. When you touch something from Cuts, you can immediately feel the quality. Their proprietary fabric blends are ridiculously soft and breathable, they don't wrinkle, and they look way more expensive than they actually are. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at CutsClothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. CutsClothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. Uh, and Brady, uh, I want us both to shut up, Brady, because I feel like you're more perturbed than most. So <laughs> please, Brady, go ahead. Well, a, a, a tiny, uh, just a tiny point of clarification, just to brag for CoinDesk. I'm pretty sure the Axios story that you read is actually by Coinbe- CoinDesk staffer Zach Seward. Uh, so oh, we also okay. did that one. Because uh, oh, awesome. we've, uh, we've been doing some content partnerships with them. It's been cool. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, my coworker there. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you guys captured it pretty well. I think one thing that maybe be, would be worth clarifying is that like, so it, it's not like everybody in the world got automatically put onto Clubhouse. They say it was the fifteen thousand largest accounts on Twitter, but that is Wait, that definitely you mean isn't Clubhouse quite, or you mean BitCloud? Uh, sorry, BitCloud. Okay. Sorry, um, it definitely wasn't everybody. In, you know, it wasn't everybody in the world. No, they said they put not. on like roughly fifteen thousand people, and it was the biggest accounts on Twitter. Is what they said to me, but it definitely wasn't the biggest just the biggest, right? I mean, it definitely was the biggest to some degree, but it wasn't just the biggest. There was some other targeting that happened because like I'm on there and I'm not in the top 15,000 uh, Twitter accounts. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm in, I'm in crypto Twitter, right? So they clearly like targeted like certain groups. And I think in particular crypto Twitter. And so the, the step that is worth noting here, which is both like kind of nice, but also sort of creepy is if you were in that group you got some of your own token set aside. So like if I'm just random mm-hmm. Joe Blow and I go and create a BitCloud account, I have to buy my own token if I believe I'm going to be the next Elon Musk and I want a piece of myself going forward. I got to I got to buy some BitCloud and then buy I had I, right. I, I signed up today and I don't know if I bought some of my own, but I had to buy some BitCloud. Right. I had to, to, to even yeah, to even be live. Right. So you're going to buy some BitCloud to even exist. And then you've got to pay some BitCloud to have any of your token. But like, since I was preloaded, 
there's a set aside for me if I just verify, right? Which is obviously like a growth hacking thing, but it's just like, it's like both nice that like I already have some set aside of my own that I don't have to pay for, but also feels weird. And also like if they wanted to, I think the other thing probably that some of the people who are objecting to about it are, are like, if you wanted to reserve accounts of folks you wanted to be there, you could do that without like creating a profile page that scraped all their stuff over Twitter and makes it look like they're already there, you know? Right. So, so like, I think that's the other thing that really bothered people. Like when I talked to the, uh, to the creator of it, this guy who goes by diamond hands, you know, he was just like, how do you think this is going to go? And I, and I was honest, I, I was just like, the launch feels weird. I mean, you guys just did some weird things in the launch, which I feel like it kind of reminds, if you guys remember Google buzz, remember how Google buzz came out and sort of appeared yes. in everybody's inboxes and revealed too much information about everybody and everyone I felt was weird about Google it. And then. I was Chris was there. <laughs> yeah. Vibrantly. It was never able to get over that, right? You know, it had its its first moments kind of color, colored the whole thing. I actually, Chris, I was actually very into Google Buzz at the time. I wasn't bothered. I thought it was great. But I was, I was <laughs> well, you probably alone. understood it, though. And the perception was the problem, and which is similar to what you're saying now. And, like, I, like this is, I think maybe this is why I'm perturbed in sort of just a shook, shaken kind of way. I don't know exactly where this is going to go because your critique and your criticism is valid. And yet on the other hand, I don't know that anybody would pay attention if they didn't take the approach that they took. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's, there's like, whenever you're kind of cold priming a new marketplace, you've got to create some type of, you know, buzz or some sort of interest or some sort of perception that the thing that is being essentially put on market is going to be valuable at some point. And you know, it's interesting because I actually talked to the founder of uh, a very similar marketplace called Idea Market. You can check it out at ideamarket.io. And it's almost identical in terms of the, uh, I guess, you know, positioning or the offering, but it hasn't quite attracted the same level of interest, partially because of the way in which it seems like it's just kind of an index, right? And it's, if it's like an index, you know, maybe, maybe think about it this way. Like if you were investing in mutual funds, and again, I'm probably going to misspeak because I'm not so financially literate yet, but I'm you know, learning. Like the, the 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 companies in that mutual fund or in the in maybe it's an ETF or something, an index, whatever. Like, don't necessarily participate in being chosen or selected to be in that that mutual fund. They're just kind of it's like a bundle or a collection, and people say, "Oh, I want to buy that list of shares or stocks, and I will you know benefit from the upside." In a similar way. It feels like that's what BitClout sort of is aspiring to do. And I don't know, do you remember, I mean, if you were on Google Buzz, you must remember, there was a site called Clout with a K. You remember that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So It was very into my Clout score. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, like, it was, it was your self-worth, you know? I mean, like, back then it was like, how many backlinks do I have? And what's my Technorati score? And I know I'm, like, you know, aging myself. But these ideas have been on the social web for a long time. And the previous iterations of this were, like, just completely unaccountable. Uh, they weren't always transparent and there was a lot of manipulation and I wouldn't call it fraud, but it was really hard to measure the integrity of the accounts that you were interacting with on social media. I mean, literally as it was, you know, anybody could be a dog, anybody could be a brand, you know, people, you know, used to claim, uh, you know, random usernames on Twitter and, you know, pretend that they were Coca-Cola or something over time that market I think has settled down a little bit. And now, you know, with trademark law and stuff like that, companies can claim their um, usernames. So what's happening is with the settling of those identifiers, this adjacent marketplace is being created. Now, you could say, well, this is really bad that BitClot does something interesting where it allows you as a, 
as the owner of that account to essentially claim it by proving your ownership of that Twitter account. Or you could just not participate at all. But it does create at least a perception of something that might be extortive. Is extortive a word? I don't know. Where you're being extorted to participate because you are being bought and sold. And there's a set of tokens that are essentially reserved for you as a like gimme that's like dangling over your head. Like, hey, here's $15,000 if you want it. But you know, if you know, that, that's totally fine. You have to participate, you know? And so that's the thing that I think is really interesting about what they've done, for better or worse. One of my favorite tweets is this guy. Uh, he's a big crypto Twitter guy. Crypto Cobain uh, was like signing up for it. And then he, it's like, he's like, I'm signing up for uh, BitClout. And then his next tweet was, next tweet is like, did they give me $200,000? What the hell am I looking at here, right? Like, it's just like, it, it also does it in these very big numbers. Um, so it's, it's very eye-catching. So Chris, I think all your points are really good. The only thing that is different, like the big difference between clout and BitClout is that like, there was nothing about clout that was enticing randoms to throw Bitcoin into a thing, you know? So like, that's the thing. It's like, I think people feel weird about the fact that their Twitter profile that they didn't give the authorization to use is a part of what's enticing, you know, just random retail buyers to FOMO into this thing and dump their Bitcoin into it. I mean, listen, if you're talking about the idea that all of a sudden you wake up and you have more money in your account than you, you know, I, I feel that way with Bitcoin cash and all of these other things that all of a sudden it's like, Oh, uh, just cause they forked a thing. Um, I, I did not know it, Chris explain yes. to me. Yeah. It, is it tied to your Twitter account in the sense that did you wake up and you're like, all right, this is in theory, um, there's uh, $70,000 or something tied to my Twitter account or something? <laughs> like, what, 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 what's, your, what's your experience? Because you have probably more clout than either of us. Well, right. So the, the thing that I worry about with BitClout is the type of popularity contest that it um, supports or promotes, right? I mean, with Elon Musk is no longer at 70K. He's now at $84,000, right, for his, his coin. Um, and similarly, like my coin is priced at $1,400 or something. But really, it doesn't you mean anything because it's in sort of like this virtual space and there's no way to extract or withdraw funds right now. Now, maybe it'll happen mm-hmm. over time. And, you know, I do recommend for folks who are, you know, listening and in this room and hearing about this thing for the first time and be like, what the is going on here? I do recommend reading the white paper because it, it's maybe two or three pages long and it does talk about the, the mechanics and they're relatively straightforward, which is something that I found to be somewhat both like refreshing and also made me more excited about it. Um, I, I am not participating in it because I hope to really, you know, make any money. I figure if I'm in it and it all goes away and it goes to zero, fine, no big deal. But if it does work out, it actually could be a really interesting way of valuing the participation of people on these platforms. Now, what I don't understand is whether or not people are being rewarded for actually generating, you know, interesting and useful content. Whereas I would say like Substack is a better measure of that, but because Substack charges a fixed fee and there's no surge pricing in Substack, then you don't really know the value of what someone is actually producing. Whereas BitClout attempts to put some value over time that increases on the way in which you participate or create value. So I can speak to that. I know yep. the plan is, is, I don't know if there's much there yet, but the idea is 
this is ostensibly this decentralized database and different nodes can build different um, instantiations of it. So you could create a node that made it very easy for you to be like, uh, I make a newsletter that you can only read if you have like $4 worth of my coin. And if you right. don't have that, yes. it won't load for you. And yep. so, and, and, and the idea is because it's decentralized, they can be all kinds of things like that with a lot of different variations and people can just make them and the, the network will know how to work with that. And so it's not, it isn't really there on bitcloud.com right now, but the idea is that people will be able to do that. And I'm told that people are already working on different offerings, you know, right. So I, like, I think, and, and, and thank you for bringing that up because I kind of forget that because I'm kind of interacting with this in a very big cloud in a very straightforward kind of way. Like I'm just experiencing it as sort of a not Twitter Twitter. It's sort of like when I used Mastodon for the first time, I was like, okay, you know, like it kind of isn't really as performant as Twitter and it is a lot more basic, but it's decentralized. Woohoo. Um, <laughs> yeah. But those types of applications, I think, is or are or suggest where this could go that becomes very interesting. And, you know, for better or worse, I think there, there, there was another room actually here in Clubhouse earlier today talking about BitCloud. And one of the things that I was bringing up was my concern about, one, like, how, how, how do you – this is a type of social reputation score um, or marketplace. And if, you know, you have someone – just, you know, to use a, a re- recent example, um, like, uh, oh my God, now I think I was thinking of, of Logan Paul because he's like on the list, but I was thinking uh, David Dobrik, right? So you have someone who has like really good clout and sort of reputation score up until a week ago. And suddenly everybody wants to like, you know, sell his, his coin. Right. His coin goes down considerably. Now there is a real financial and significant hit to his ability to, you know, I mean, to like fund things or to have access to things because in this marketplace, he's actually been punished. That's really interesting. It's really scary, but it's interesting. And it's something that doesn't really happen. Um, you know, there's like a lot of things that go on with cancel culture and yet people persist or, or, or survive it. Um, whereas this puts a value that we haven't been able to measure previously in a public marketplace. And so just That's- looping back to, sorry, I'll, I'll give you a sec, uh, Brady, your point where once we have these decentralized identifiers that stick with you and have a dollar figure attached to them and, you know, I can then access secret or private information or an exclusive, like, I mean, like, for example, the perfect example that's actually, Brian, this is for you. I am a paid subscriber to the Tech Beam Ride Home Show. Now, I bought a bunch of your tokens today, Brian, and so that means that you should give me access and, and special privilege to your content that other people who have less numbers of coins or no coins can't access. And so the coins become the coin of the realm in unlocking limited access things. Now, NFTs can also be used in that way potentially, but this is saying you actually invested in me as a person and you're holding my coin. Therefore, I'm going to continue to reward you individually because I can identify you as a loyalty card holder of the Christmas Cena coin. And that's also, where this does get interesting. And, and, and it was me, as always, that was trying to interrupt you because that, that's how we do. Um, it, it, okay, this is really old school, but there was a thing that might still exist called the Hollywood Stock Exchange okay. um, from the beginning of the internet because I, I played it in 1996 when I was a freshman in college. And like it, it felt like a game where you would, like the movies that were coming out, 
um, you could buy stock in them and and uh, to, to 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 judge what their box office returns would be. And you could yeah, buy like stock hsx.com. Okay, all right. Um, so there you go. And and also, I believe I don't know if this is still true, but there was a time when Hollywood was like very, really bullish on it, where it's like, well, this will help us gauge the interest in in various properties well, it's like and demand gen, right? It's like how many people right. want to see this movie made, and if they put money down behind it, then they must really want to see it. And it always felt like a game, right? Which was a game that was fun to play, but then, you know, gamifying things can also be very valuable in, in certain senses. So to what degree are we talking about? You're, you're talking about market manipulation and how, like, um, uh, you know, reputations could rise and fall and things like that. So, like, it's almost like to what degree would um, any person's value rise and fall independently of what is ever happening like not to go too far down this road but like what if what if someone gets in trouble but they're not fired by their employer right but their stock falls or their clout score falls or something like that um am i going too crazy down this road in the sense that well, like, no, was, i mean go, go ahead this was like i think the best thing that someone said in, in the story that i did you know this was the part that really blew my mind when he said it i mean this is chris was hinting at this but just to say it outright he was like i'm objecting to this and i'm trying to get people to stay away from it because i feel like this will basically incentivize cancel culture you know you can you can uh you can see someone who's got a weakness you can take out a short on them exploit it and then profit and we've already seen this in crypto there's already some you know person coins out there there was a drama last summer that happened one of the people involved in it uh has a personal coin and like you know it's the guy's not wrecked but you could see the hit in the price on his coin during this drama that went down so we already know that that's feasible to do so it, it does seem weird kind of giving people a financial incentive to take people down, you know, and that could be. Do you, do you, I mean, but at the same time, do you think that, that it might be possible? And, and again, like I want to be realistic and not naive about, you know, people and how they behave, but that maybe there is a possible pro-social beneficial aspect that if you do behave in a certain way that you will be rewarded and you'll also have a certain number of fans. I mean, I think that the, the Dobrik sure. thing is really interesting and unfortunately, he's not, at least as far as I can tell, on BitClout in a way that's tradable. And it, because it's not public, his fans haven't bought his, his coin. But they did buy into what he was selling. And now, you know, uh, Peter Kafka had a great uh, story about, you know, what happened there. Um, you know, he's lost a lot of credibility. He's lost a lot of sponsors. So I guess maybe the thing maybe to think about in this moment is that Dobrik loses a lot of his corporate sponsors, but his fans still stick with him. Whereas BitClout actually allows you know, your sponsors to be the actual people who are consuming your content as opposed to commercial entities that are drafting off of the attention that you're assembling. And that direct relationship makes you much more accountable to the people who own your coin. Now, that isn't to say that there won't be distortions. And if someone comes along and like, you know, buys all my coins and I'm like beholden to them. And again, you know, it can become very, very nasty. Like there's going to be financialization that occurs between creators and their fans and their community. And the question is, how do creators maintain their own sense of self and their own autonomy to make the right choices for themselves that are ideally healthy and you know, good, whatever good is, when fans may increasingly have, I mean, like, I, like 
I don't participate in the OnlyFans universe, but to me, this feels somewhat similar or adjacent, where there's a direct monetization relationship between people who are essentially OnlyFan coin owners, which are just the subscribers, and the people that are providing the services through OnlyFans. So how is, how is this different and how is this the same? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's a tough one. Well, I, I, I do. The short answer is I think you're right that there'll be some cool things that come out of it. I, you know, I, look, my initial reaction to it was like, like, I think the automated market makers they have built in are cool. I like the idea of all the different, if you're, like you said, read the white paper, the ideas that they were throwing out there. I think there's a lot of cool stuff there. Uh, fun thing on OnlyFans, I was, I don't, I don't know this for sure, but I was talking to a scholar who's done some work in that area today. And, and she happened to tell me that apparently the biggest way you make money on OnlyFans, really, like once you're big, is you basically help smaller people become bigger and they pay you for it. Uh, yeah. Oh, like, wow. Yep. And yep. so it, it feels like that. Shout outs. Also, you're you're yeah, yeah, selling shout outs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That could also, you know, sort of spread beyond that I world, mean, you know, just to, just to be clear, like that behavior, right? A shout out on OnlyFans is the same exact thing as someone who has a lot of followers on Instagram putting a brand in their stories and doing a shout out, except right. the or it's, it's or the entity. affiliate. It's affiliate yeah. marketing. Yeah. Well, it's in, this is a little bit more direct where it's like, sure, sure, sure. Right. But you're ratcheting or scaffolding off of other people's notoriety. And then people are paying to gain access to your audience. Okay. Well, so we've, we've been going an hour and Brady, I'd love for you to stick around. If anybody from the audience, you know, has something to say, or, you know, want to contribute to this conversation, if you've got questions, um, I would like to invite you to raise your hand um, when you come up, you know, ideally keep your, your, uh, any introduction to be super, super minuscule. And then if you've got a question, make it a question, not a and statement. Can I, can I uh, jump in here yep. real quick to say, cause we didn't put it on the, the title. Uh, we are recording this and we would like to use this for a tech me right home podcast. So if you do jump in, uh, please understand it's being recorded and we'd like to use it at some point. Um, but yes, uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. Um, in terms of, I guess I'm trying to like imagine. So supposedly the password that is necessary to get into this site is coming down on Tuesday. And so that'll be the day when everyone can join and who knows what's going to happen. You know, like I'm in a telegram group, uh, that's basically, hyping and pumping a bunch of these BitCloud accounts. And in that sense, it's purely speculative. So wait, that, uh, so the only yeah. reason that I got on there today is because you sent me the link. I, I, I was yes. not aware. Okay. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> All right. Go yeah. on. So I, I sent you the link with a password uh, so you can create an account. And I've tried to actually um, claim my account by posting my public key to Twitter. And again, this gets a little you know convoluted. But I have not so far been verified. And so, again, there is a pecking order. It's not automated. I'm not quite sure why. There's been some technical glitches and issues along the way. Um, but I'm imagining that some of those are being dealt with and that by Tuesday, you know, I don't know, it's going to open up and we'll see. We'll see what happens. Colin, welcome. How are you guys doing, man? Thank you for Dude. having such a great room. Sure. Uh, and I listen to uh, you, Brian, as well. No, thank um, you, Colin. <laughs> so, um, I. What I was thinking, and I don't know how this will work, like say for instance, when um, like I work around a lot of celebrities, work on them um, and politicians as well. With celebrities, 
it would it be a conflict of interest because it's going to be a point where someone has an investment on certain celebrities and the media can portray certain artists a different way when they want most of the time and if you're you have a justin bieber that you you know invested in and the story's coming out and you're like ah you know it sways a different way or you don't go as hard as you want where you know it it, it just seems like it's going to be geared toward that way now do you think it, it's gonna you know change a lot even in the media I mean, we're, we're, we're so early into this. Like I never even thought of that <laughs> conflict of interest in terms of like, uh, if you have personal investments, like, you know, it's traditional for journalists to, to, to divest themselves of any holdings in any companies that they, uh, would, would cover. So, yeah, I, I mean, it, and, and we're talking about people right now, but like, you know, you could, in theory, this could expand to, I don't know, anything like to uh, Major League Baseball could be something that you, you would buy into or or Ford could be something that you buy into. Like, so, uh, you know, forget about stocks like these. These could be, you know, third level investment, things like that. So I never even thought about that. It just, it just, yeah, I mean, it probably it's possible probably it will happen. There are no rules, no regulations. We are in a very uncharted open territory, but we also have a sense for how humans behave over time. And so, you know, my, my message, I just want to be clear because I haven't, I don't think said this, you know, is like buyer beware, realize that if you participate in this type of system, whatever you put into it could absolutely go away tomorrow. Like there might be nothing left. And, uh, you know, it's like anything else. Um, these are very early days and these are interesting ideas and concepts. And what I like about it is that it exists and you can play with it and you can kind of like get a sense for what a marketplace of this nature might look like, especially before we see a lot more financialization happening on Twitter directly. For example, you know, I know and you know, Twitter has talked about how they're going to be adding tips um, to Twitter spaces. You know, how does that manipulate or change the dynamic of how people interact. Already, one of the things that I'm noticing is I'm getting spam on BitClout for other people who have coins asking me to buy their coin and then they'll buy mine. And then that will create a pump between both of us mm-hmm. and then we'll make more money. And so that lack of, at least as far as I can see, even though there's something called the BitClout Explorer, which allows you to go in and look at the transactions that are occurring, is going to require a type of data journalism to intersect with this context to try to make sense of the financial machinery that's sort of underlying all of this. So there's going to absolutely be weird shit that goes on. Uh, It's going to be a little bit different than the players who were doing the stuff before. Can I jump in just two contextual things that might be helpful for folks who are listening who aren't super crypto? One thing that's worth knowing about BitCloud is like, and this is true for lots of things in the cryptocurrency world, is there's not really a company like, well, there, there explicitly is right. no company right. that's doing BitCloud. It's it's run on this blockchain. It's distributed. It's controlled by people who have the BitCloud token, which is obviously right now, mostly the people who made it. But like that's going to be distributed over time and they they want to, you know, fade out into the background like Satoshi did. So one of the things you have to shift your thinking of about these things is it's not like there's a BitCloud CEO that you can go to or like BitCloud HQ that you can visit. It's just different in that way. 
Um, so that's just a worthwhile thing for people to know. And just a really quick thing I want to say, following up on your point, Chris, is the thing that the other concern I had about BitCloud isn't really a concern. It's just that like every time we've seen a social network that enabled its users to profit, it just like that's become the obsession and it isn't really that fun because everyone's just trying to make money. You know, we saw that on like Tao or Sue, I think it's called Sue and like Steam and just like a bunch of these. It's just like when it's about money, it just gets very focused on the money and it isn't really about like fun interaction. So uh, we haven't even brought this up. Um, Brady, what do you think about the the notion that uh, people can get Bitcoin in right now and no one can get it out? Like it, uh, that's raising some red flags for people. What do you think about that at, at all? I, so I don't think BitCloud is a scam, like sort of in the sense that like they're just t- want to take everyone's Bitcoin and run. I don't buy that. I just I think the people who are involved are, you know, credible enough that that's not what they're doing. I, I understand why that's freaking people out and the optics are weird. You know, that, you know, like I, I confirmed that Coinbase Ventures invested for sure. Uh, so I know that that's the case. So that's a major exchange that, you know, they're probably not going to add BitCloud tomorrow. But like, you know, if they invested, it's probably on their radar to do so. And they've got Hobie in there. They say I, I, I think they do. So that's another exchange people could get to. So I, I think it'll happen. But um, and, it, and it's hard for exchanges to add things before they have any track record, too. So I, I don't think that's a big concern, but I can understand why it freaks people out optically. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, it'll be it, if all of this works out, it'll be very interesting, right? If you can actually go to like Coinbase and, you know, buy these coins or buy the BitCloud coin, and then buy some creators. And again, like it's important to note that you don't need to buy a whole coin to be an owner. That's it's it's similar to like Ethereum. And if you've had any experience with that, you know that like you know one Ether or one Bitcoin can actually be fractionalized down to like a very very low um, or, or high decimal number. Um, so in that sense, it would be interesting if you if everybody that you followed on Twitter was actually someone whose coin you bought, and maybe it costs you three cents, you know, to buy that, but then you kind of own it. And then if that person accrues a huge number of followers over time, then you'd also benefit in that upside. I, I, Brady, I totally agree with what you're saying, though, about introducing financial financialization into social media, that it hasn't worked and it creates a whole bunch of uh, distortions or possible distortions in the behavior of the network. But I also feel like we're moving into a world and a younger generation where there's an assumption that you know they learn the lesson that... If you're not paying, then you are the product. And I think they're kind of done with that arrangement. You know, there's been enough YouTube influencers who are like, you know, fuck you, pay me, where they're tired of, you know, Google making all this money off of the content they're producing. And so they want a different arrangement. And these types of experiments seem to be moving in that direction of financialization. I mean, I think we're going to see it here on Clubhouse when you're able to charge for rooms. In fact, today on Podaton, I launched something. Was it today or was it yesterday? I don't know. It doesn't matter. I launched something which, you know, and Paul's here, so he'll probably, you know, sick the clubhouse, you know, Gestapo on this or whatever. But basically it allows people to charge for private room, to access to private rooms. Um, and it, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to be here. And so if it, if it becomes normal for people to spend money on things, that is going to cause more currency to flow. And so the preoccupation with money being the core of a social media platform maybe becomes less of a thing because it's just so much more common and so much more normal. And I think that to me is, is a major generational shift that we're going to go through where it hasn't worked in the past, 
but it's because we also didn't have the same movement of money and currency that um, crypto allows us to have. Well, let's see. What else have we got here? I guess I'll bring, uh, well, let's see. Well, I don't know. Any, any, other, any other thoughts, questions, or, you know, Brady, what are, what are the other, in terms of, you know, you talk to Diamond Hands, which, you know, is sort of like the, uh, the Tom of MySpace, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what, when it comes to, so it's, you know, the other thing that you were saying that I thought was interesting, which I can relate to a little bit, is their desire to, to remain anonymous and sort of almost like put this message in a bottle and like toss it out into the ocean and kind of see where it goes. And I can say that because for the first five or six years after I wrote up, you know, the proposal for the hashtag, I really stepped away from trying to associate myself with it. You know, my blog post was still out there, but for the most part, I was like, cool, like this is being used on social media. I don't want to be identified with it because I, I want this to be an idea that is of and for and by people who are on the social web. Um, and it was only when Twitter threatened to trademark the, the term hashtag and to prevent other social media platforms from using it that I decided to sort of, you know, step out of the shadows and say, uh-uh, you can't do that. Like, this is something that is bigger than Twitter. Um, and so in a similar way, I think it's really hard to launch essentially what could be like a, I don't know, either an autonomous or decentralized organization or not even an organization, but a format or a protocol and allow it to grow into something without a central body that's con- like, you know, controlling it or is accountable in the way that we think of corporations as necessarily being accountable for the things that they produce. Mm-hmm. So what is your sense in terms of what, I guess, Diamond Hands or like his crew ultimately wants to achieve? Why are they doing this? I think they're really, and I, I wasn't impressed by this part. I, I think I think they feel like they had an insight about all the prior attempts to do monetized social media, that they were all monetizing the wrong thing, that they were monetizing like a great post, whereas uh, right, uh, right. as opposed to the person, they, as to, to what you were saying earlier, right? They feel like that was their big insight. And this was an exciting thing to bring to folks and could make all of this feel quite different. So I think that's what they're excited about. And I think, yeah, they want to build it out to the point that it can kind of have a community that can carry it on. They want to see other nodes, other websites get spun up. And then, you know, they they probably want to move on to other projects. At least that's what they say. And I can only take them at their word. You know, for folks who aren't following crypto, uh, if that sounds weird that, you know, someone could like spin the thing up, just put it out in the ether and other people would run it. You know, we have that to a certain degree in open source. But we're also really starting to see that for like real crypto based companies that's happening. There's this thing called Yearn, for example, which to me is the leading one. And, and they just help you make money on Ethereum. That's uh, Yearn.finance, that right? Is that what that is? Yeah, Yearn.finance. Okay. Yeah. And that's a really cool project that started with one guy just putting this, this smart contract together that people got excited about. And he was like, hey, send me your ideas. And a lot of people sent ideas. And now it's a real behemoth. And it's just a true decentralized autonomous organization. So, uh, so far, this kind of thing isn't impossible. You know, you, you raised something really important. I, I feel like we're kind of at an intersectionality. And I feel, I don't know, I feel a little bit weird bringing this up, but so many conversations on Clubhouse end up talking about crypto, but for people who feel like they're in the crypto space. And to me, I guess I feel like that opportunity that we have and, you know, that Brian and I have is to be hopefully kind of like bridge builders. Cause like, I'm not deep in the space. Um, but I will say that, um, 
you know, when I was working in open source, one of the perceptions of open source, and this is back in like 2004 and five, was that it was like a communist plot to take over the capitalist system. You know, that sounds like a crazy idea, but you think about crypto and crypto sort of has like the same kind of, you know, pirate vibe to it. And so it's somewhat off-putting. But when you get to these fundamentals and you start to understand like what some of these things mean and what it, you know, kind of like ultimately means when it comes to software eating the world, autonomous pieces of code, you know, that are built into the blockchain as smart contracts where they execute if certain conditions in the real world happen, become super interesting as a, I don't know, a basic unit of chaos, I guess, but in like a positive way. They're like, you know, seeds from uh, dandelions that spring forth and, you know, cause new growth to occur. We don't know exactly how it's going to work out. So this feels like one of those things that's just on the cusp and brings together a bunch of different things that are happening all at once that allows us to tell a story about what's happening now in the world um, that, you know, may or may not turn out to be true or whatever, but gives us a moment to reflect um, and I, I think in that sense, there's, there's some value in it. It's something new under the sun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, or an alternative sort of perspective. John, welcome. Welcome on stage here. I think is this, no, we've had a phone call before. So, uh, I just brought up John, John, we're, uh, is building the pro social, uh, design network. He and I have had a number of conversations kind of about how to build social technology that is, uh, sort of pro social and humanistic. Um, but anyways, uh, John, what would you like to contribute? Uh, yeah, uh, this is my first time on a uh, Clubhouse call, so uh, welcome. Maybe some hiccups, but we'll see what happens. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess I just want to chime in. It's sort of a thought I've had before. I've raised it with uh, Chris before um, of there being, I guess, some sort of blockchain cryptocurrency where just through using, in the case of social networks, using a social network to have that sort of fund the operations of the social network. It's something I've sort of thought about every now and again in terms of a possible application, but it seems like uh, the technology has sort of moved beyond that to now, I guess, individual people have it. I'm, I'm, I joined it a little late, so I think I missed the first uh, bit of things there. Sorry, can you repeat your question real quick? Oh, my question. Um, I guess, is that a feasible application of the, of the uh, technology where um, of uh, this uh, blockchain stuff where through using, I I guess some sort of Ethereum cryptocurrency, you're able to have a uh, social network fund its operations instead of using ads sort of like, I think brave kind of does this. Yep. Um, Yep. So I'm wondering if that would, could possibly apply to social networks or at large. So they're not reliant on, Add dollars again, since there's a whole uh, bunch of stuff that goes on with um, you know social media companies getting ads and how that yeah and you know it's, it's an interesting question um, and I guess to try to attempt an answer to your question because I don't understand maybe this goes to my previous point about DAOs or decentralized what are they called decentralized something organizations autonomous autonomous yeah autonomous. yeah decentralized autonomous organizations. Uh, there's this great book um, uh, uh, called Daemon, D-A-E-M-O-N. It's from a few years back. And essentially there's this future where there are autonomous cars that just like roam the streets as like kind of rabid packs of dogs. And they like attack people from time to time. Anyways, it's super interesting. But like I sort of visualize these DAOs in that sense where there's a bunch of smart contracts or rules or just, you know, code that's written 
and says, when this happens, do this. And when that happens, do that. And it just kind of runs on the blockchain. And there's not really, you know, uh, a company. I mean, maybe there's, there's a company or people that are contributing to it, but it's a little bit like, you know, Wikipedia or Firefox or something where there's kind of, you know, contributions made to the underlying, you know, code that runs it, but more or less it's leaderless. It's like a leaderless organization, which again is, is well, super interesting and cool, but yes. There, there is, I mean, there is a social network that supports itself and is all decentralized. I mean, that does exist. It started as Steam, Steam still exists, and now it's called Hive. And it, it was started with, I think, some venture funding, a guy named Dan Larimer, who's big in crypto, was one of the key founders of it. Uh, but it's it, it now has spun off. It's all on its own. You know, it runs. It's basically like um, uh, medium, but on blockchains. And, you know, people do make money off of running it. It keeps going and, and it isn't ad supported. It's supported by making its own cryptocurrency valuable by people using it on there. So, yeah. um it's it's happened. Yeah, and I, I I guess to to answer John's you know question, it is it is possible, and the machinery is different. And I, and I think the reason why I had kind of a thought stutter was because it's like, well, I don't really know how BitClout you know makes money per se. Um, I know that they're they're obviously selling BitClout coins, um, and they're creating this marketplace. And there's going to be I don't know if there's there are like some transaction fees and stuff like that that happen, but it's different. You know, it's not so much about monetizing attention as it is about trying to create a kind of a friction layer, which is the, the coin between the creator and the consumer of that content. And so it's a direct relationship. I mean, it's not, you know, I mean, honestly, like, again, the metaphors are pretty, I think, easy to come up with. You can imagine if you're a subscriber to Disney Plus, um, you know, you're, you, you have a direct relationship with Disney and you're basically buying access to their content. And if you stop paying or you stop owning their quote unquote coin, then you lose access to that content. And so that's the type of dynamic and relationship that's being created here, but it's at a much smaller, almost microscopic level relative to the types of subscription businesses that used to exist where, you know, you're a magazine and you have millions of subscribers and you really don't have a relationship with any of them. So that's one of the things I think that's new in this, in this dynamic. Um, well, but actually, you go ahead. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, where, where profit comes from is so... If you are, I mean, if you're a miner, you get the emissions of new BitCloud that comes. And if you're a BitCloud holder or you're earning BitCloud somewhere in the system, the BitCloud value goes up the more people join it because they can only that I can only buy the Christmasina token with BitCloud. I can't buy it with any right. other coin. Right. So uh, if more people want to buy more people's token, then more BitCloud needs to be acquired. That drives up the value of BitCloud. And so everyone who's been earning BitClout by helping to run the system is getting richer. So that's that's where the money comes from. It's not okay. through any sort of like sub payments. Got it. Yeah. Okay. That's that's yeah. So I mean, basically, by making the currency more valuable by having more of it in circulation, the economy overall for BitClout like rises. There is there's another platform called Voice.com, which is it's very strange. I, I signed up a long time ago, and it's I don't really like it so much. But they do have their own sort of internal currency where instead of or maybe in addition to likes, you can also, what do they call it? It's like you can voice a, a, a product or, or something. It's very, it's, it's like Steam it, but it's not decentralized and it's weird. So there are efforts, you know, down this path where likes are a type of currency, but you have infinite of them. So like the inflation rate is like a bajillion. It's like infinite. Whereas, you know, if you put a, you know, there's another one, I think in Reddit where you have like karma and you can kind of give posts or people you know, good vibes, or I think, I don't know, I got a teddy bear I could give someone or whatever. There's just lots of different ways that these platforms are experimenting with rewarding different behaviors that I think is interesting. 
Whenever I need to do financial research for this show, for instance, during tech earnings season, when I have to analyze how various companies' stocks have been performing, I only ever turn to our sponsor today, Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They are the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. With everybody fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. Don't know much about marketing? No sweat. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features features help you say the right thing at the right time every time plus you can send with confidence knowing your emails are actually reaching your customers thanks to constant contacts best in class 97% deliverability rate i use this and you should too tackle any challenge with constant contacts expert live customer support plus everything's backed by their 30 day money back guarantee so get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at constantcontact.com just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Speaking of rewarding different people, I do want to do one last segment here, uh, which we haven't gotten to, but we did sort of tease it in my tweet. And Brian, I don't know if you want to read this one, but yeah. uh, I do think that it's really, really relevant in this whole space of monetizing and creators and publishers, because we want to talk about this recent, the 24th pivot, I think, that Medium <laughs> has gone through. Yeah, and, and Brady might have some thoughts on this as well. But um, uh, so, yes, because I'm not even going to attempt to do another clip. Um, let me summarize the story, which is that uh, earlier this week, the Medium offered buyouts to everyone on its editorial staff because it was shifting its focus uh, from having its own publications on medium to essentially trying to pivot to a Substack like model. The reason that this is uh, noteworthy is because um, uh, medium has, has shifted many times and they've had uh, um, essentially their own magazines on their platform, their own, whatever. And then they go away from that and they, they go to, Oh no, we're just a blogging platform. We're just a writing platform. Um, I will quote the part that people um, uh, talked about <laughs> this week, and then I do want to say that I, I, I want to comment on it. But um, So I said on Wednesday that um, 
Ev Williams, who is uh, the founder of Medium and also uh, one of the co-founders of uh, Twitter and uh, blogger back in the day. Ev Williams has been trying to find a business model for writing for 20 years, going back to founding Blogger. And in all this time, he still hasn't found a way. I'm not saying that that's an easy thing to do, but I am saying that maybe no one should ever put their trust in Ev to ever do it again. In the meantime, thanks to Twitter, Ev has become a billionaire. So either he has to do the billionaire thing and just start subsidizing writers and journalists, or he should stop this experimentation because it's getting ridiculous at this point. The word dilettante is considered a pejorative because it implies that you are unserious and what you're unserious about can be harmful to others. And basically that's what I'm saying here. <laughs> I think I said that to you. I think Chris, uh, I said that to you the night before because you I was did. pissed off and I, uh, I, I burned hot and I felt bad about saying that to that <laughs> degree subsequently but to the, in this degree, which is, it's not like anyone else has, you know, all of a sudden, uh, made a, a unicorn out of getting writers paid. So it is mm -hmm. a hard thing to do. Um, but what I think the key thing here is, is that, um, yeah, like Medium has raised, oh shit, I just brought it up, um, $132 million in venture capital over its life. It's been around for a decade. Like, can we stop this? Like, that's the point. Can we just stop this? Because every time that they pivot this way and that way, it's it, in the same way that people get pissed about the arbitrary uh, rules in an app store and developers are hurt. Like, look, writers, journalists are the equivalent here of developers that get jerked around because some platform decides Platisher. they're going to change the rules. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, <sighs> I, I I feel like, you know, your burning hotness was, was warranted, you know, like I, it just feels it's, it's maybe the, 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 the hard part is I don't know how else you can do this, right? Like if he's looking at some stats and the stats like aren't promising, you've got to make a change or a shift. Is it the type of communication? Is it the ambivalence? Is it the, wishy-washiness is it jerking people around and saying well i want this but oh that's not good enough let's do this and then you know what i mean like, I, I do feel like they've tried every single model you know that was under the sun they've returned back to like email-based subscribers uh, it's just it's sort of like what is this thing trying to be and i guess like you and said, that, like yeah. that's what made me feel bad about it which was it is a hard nut to crack it's not like anyone else has cracked it but at the same time, um, because this is the 10th attempt, like, again, if it is, it, it, and, and so, all right, look, <clears throat> there are different billionaires that have bought things like, you know, the New Republic or the Atlantic or uh, the Washington Post and things like that. And, and every one of them, in theory, wants to, or, or Time Magazine, uh, to use... Um, uh, a, a more recent one. Um, every one of them is like, well, we're going to turn this into a self-sustaining business. It's not like uh, billionaires just always go in and subsidize things. But, um, you know, 
Ev has always run this as a venture-backed sort of entity. And so it's always been this sort of profit and loss thing. So I'm just questioning what his motivation is. If his motivation is we've got to... um, We've got to fund voices. We've got to fund writers. We've got to. We've got to have. Then, then clearly, after ten years, this hasn't worked. So either you got to walk away from it, or you've got to just be like, um, forget that one hundred and thirty-two million dollars that we raised. I'll just fund this for as long as it goes, and I will fund those voices. I, I feel like it's that half and half thing that I feel like is jerking people around. It is unfair to folks. I mean, it's, it's the ambivalence, right? And part of it, I suppose, is not having insight or a way of really evaluating or relating to the way in which like, he's making decisions. Um, and like you said, I mean, it's, it's tough. And I think one of the questions would be, to your point, if you just stepped away, what would, be, what would the internet be like without Medium? Like, would it, would it matter? Like, is it a significant force is it a force for good or is it a force for, you know, like I'm a medium plus subscriber or whatever, you know, and it's not that expensive. And the whole idea, I think at that time was that medium was going to offer a model that was similar to Spotify, where it would aggregate a whole bunch of subscribers money and then distribute it to the writers in a way that was somehow equitable, equitable based on it. In the early days, you remember like you would be paid and compensated by the number of claps you got. And that led to clap inflation. (laughs) And, uh, then eventually they're like, okay, we're going to come up with some, you know, sort of, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Some creepy way of observing the amount of time spent where people are actually reading your content, right? And so I'm sure that they created something for capturing like the scroll port and seeing how much of the page was visible and how much time people spent reading an article. And then that was how they created the algorithm for paying people. But, right. but now in the privacy world and on mobile, especially, Maybe it becomes impossible to measure in that way. And so they realize, oh God, our model is fucked. Well, the only way for this to really to work is to move towards the Substack thing where readers are paying the writers directly because we can't use the surveillance equipment that we established to make that model work anymore. Brady, go ahead. There's, I mean, there's nothing that I like about Medium. I really don't like that company. I've had it out for it for a long time. And when they started hiring journalists again, I was really upset that people started going because I was just like, guys, they're going to do the same thing again. Like, what are you doing? But I think one of the things, if I want to give a specific complaint about Medium that really bothers me about it uh, is, you know, it is the preferred venue for whatever reason for crypto people to post their think pieces you know, for whatever reason, they like a centralized place to do it. You know, Kai and the team are right there, but whatever. It is right. their preferred. It's their preferred spot to be smart on the internet, right? And so, yep. I look at Medium posts all the time, and I'm and I, I don't pay because I won't pay it because uh, I don't like them. But um, they uh, they're constantly being paywalled, and like, look, I know these people. They make a lot of money. These are these are well off people that. a month or whatever that they might give off of people reading their think pieces. That's not why they're posting them. Mm -hmm. And like, I think that medium is, you know, using like weird little design things to make folks not notice that they're opting into the pay program. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like that also really bothers me um, because I just think, you know, a part of the story that um, Casey Newton explored in his platformer newsletter is that 
they were finding that they were getting most of their revenue from just random people writing compelling posts on there that they didn't commission. Mm. And, right, and that's, right. all, that's all fine, but I think a bunch of those were probably, you know, some number of those, not a bunch, but some number of those were like the crypto stuff that I was trying to see that were just accidentally paywalled, which I also mm. think is just kind of like, you know, just kind of easy well, behavior that I don't love. I mean, there's there's other things here, which is in theory, uh, this might have gone down because there was a uh, a failed uni- unionization attempt that might, ha- even though it failed, it might have uh, been coming uh, forward. You're talking about the fact that again, it's almost like it's almost like the the Huff Post or. Uh, um, uh, what was it Forbes thing of like, well, you know, it's much cheaper for us to just like uh, grab uh, the crowdsource this and like, as opposed to paying actual journalists. And then there's one more thing. And this is the thing that I've always had against it. It's almost like the, the Dave, Dave Weiner argument about this is like, I'm so old school. That's like, if I have a thought, why am I giving it to a platform? Like I can still create my own website. I can still have my own blog, even if it's on Facebook, even if it's on Twitter, like why am I going to a platform to then build my presence on that other thing? So it was always like, I I didn't understand why people and there's, you know, like like people have done it very successfully. I'm thinking of like MG Siegler Mm -hmm. is, is, is on there. And, and, but it's like, just, just throw up a blog, man. It's not that hard. Um, so I, I, I would, I would, I, w- I want to push back on that just a little bit, uh, partially okay. because you know we're living in the era of so many different things. I mean, from you know just different screen sizes and designing like an actual responsive design, which you know, granted, if you're doing only doing plain text, not a big deal. But in the, and I would say, sort of medium's heyday, the design that they brought, uh, you know, to the world of reading online really did, I think transcend the form and they, they made it pleasurable, you know, for so long, especially, you know, once web fonts became available and that wasn't the case for a long time, medium, I think embraced them rather quickly. Um, they had some really amazing web programmers that they, um, you know, hired to work on that stuff. And so relative to WordPress, you know, your site actually looked quite good and it was quite clean and it had some elements of, um, uh, distribution, that if you only self-hosted, you know, again, this is presuming that you're trying to publish in an era that's post RSS readers and post the demise right. of Google there, Reader. There was some social discovery elements that they had. I, I agree. I got you. Yeah. So, so to me, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, I moved my blog over there was because the writing experience was really nice. Um, it didn't feel like you were writing into a text box. It felt like you were writing onto like a blank canvas. Um, and then you did have some of that distribution part. Now I agree with like, you know, Brady's, critiques that once it got into the business of content and it was no longer just, Hey, we're, you know, everything's free. Everything's great. That's when things got a little bit weird. And so this whole like dynamic, I think to, to Brader's earlier point, which applied to any social platform that introduced, you know, money and financial compensation becomes problematic. Now, one thing that here, here's my conspiracy hat. Um, if I were, and I don't know what the cost, you know, to actually do this would be, but I can imagine generating a whole bunch of posts for medium that are, that's written by GPT-3 and putting them behind the paywall. And I would probably start to generate a reasonable amount of money, especially if I'm creating you know, multiple accounts that all look somewhat plausible and essentially are like the deep fakes of text content. And then I'm just hoovering up content without actually you know, doing any of the work 
And because people accidentally click through these articles or because they have, you know, GPT-3 optimized headlines. I literally just hunted a product last week that looks at $250 million worth of Facebook ad spend uh, to optimize ads for, for people. And it'll rate you on the likelihood of conversion. So rather than you doing the testing with multiple ads, they'll just be like, well, we've already got the AI. We already know it's going to work. And so we'll just give it to you. Now imagine applying that to writing medium posts and then using GPT-3 to generate the content. And suddenly the lack of relationship between author and reader becomes a real existential threat to medium's business model. While, as you said, their staff writers are trying to unionize, which is going to make them more expensive. So that arbitrage becomes, I think, really problematic to sustain over, let's say, the next two to three years, which has got to be what Ed's looking at in terms of the relationships that Substack is able to, to create between the writers and their readers, which in some cases, as we've just lear- learned through the spreadsheet that was going around, you know, you have Substack writers that are making a million dollars a year writing right. a newsletter. Right. So how I, do they I, compete with that? Well, listen... But but that's on Ev for like uh, for sub Substack coming around and being like oh shit this is what I should have done yeah okay um, but it, it, there's two things number one I I don't I, I I don't shed any tears at least until GPT three takes over and there are no human writers if you are in the media business you have to pay humans. And in the media business, those humans will um, unionize. And if anyone gets into the media business that thinks otherwise, then you're being naive. And that includes uh, founders and VCs. Um, In the media business, you will be dealing with unions. And that's just the, the long and short of it. So... I'm, I'm sorry. I I, 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 I I don't know, man. Like, and I say this because, again, one of the benefits of being on Product Hunt the way I am is that I get to see what people are building and what's out there. And I think that there's now 30 to 45 to maybe 50 products that are GPT-3 marketing tools that will write your content for you. And all you got to do is like push a button and, you know, like recycle until you get something you like. And I'm not saying that that's like the final step, but that tech is coming for a lot of that, a, a mm. lot of those jobs that were producing that content. And so those who are good and are creative and have a good voice and, you know, write effectively are the ones who are going to get the lion's share of the subscriber's money because what they're producing is like the Disney plus of written content. So naturally the spoils will go to them because everything else in between is, you know, fairly mediocre or not that interesting. And I'm not saying that's good. I'm just looking at what's happening in the marketplace and technology is changing this dynamic again. I am not. I'm not going to say you're wrong, and maybe we are <laughs> at that inflection point where that is true. I'm just saying that I think you're wrong, and that in, <laughs> you, in the way do that you hope that I'm wrong, or do you think? No, no, no. I think in the way that um, I've said this in. I think I said this in my book. I said it in many essays that there is a longer time that people think where it's like, oh, the computers are going to take over and they're going to think for us and they're going to work for us. There is a longer interim interregnum period where the computers and the humans have to coexist. And so you might be right. You might be, this is the exact um, tipping point where um, five years from now, there will be no writers. There will be no editors and things like that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if, if you're if you are the, the CEO, if you're the captain of Medium, like, you know, mm-hmm. let's leave Ev out of this and let's leave all mm-hmm. the pivots in the past out of it, right? Yeah, sorry, Ev, by the way, I have nothing against you, but 
Right. But, we, but you're yes, sitting on ahead. top of, of that platform, right? Yeah. And you've got to figure out the future of it. I guess my question would be looking across all the things you know and all the movement that you're seeing and all the investment insight that you have, because you know, not only are you an investor, but you, of course, see a lot of deal flow from other places and you see where the money's going. What do you do? Do you persist on? Do you support the unionization of your staff, which you may not be able to support very long because, frankly, they're not writing the hits that the New York Times is or that the Atlantic is or like these other you know, <clears throat> people who are not aspiring to build a platform as well? It's like I can't I, go I, and I, I, I on the I, Atlantic and start publishing on the Atlantic. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure what sort of we might not be talking about the same sort of businesses. Okay, sure. Um, in the sense that, um, like, okay, like look at look at the Athletic and Axios, which in theory are are combining today or soon to with a SPAC and et cetera, et cetera. Those are growth businesses that have nothing to do with um, uh, bots writing the headlines and things like that, at least for the foreseeable future. And there are, there's big money behind them that is, is believing there's a growth uh, future ahead of them. I understand the fact that like, if you look at the idea of like the Buzzfeeds and the Voxes and like 10 years ago, um, capital got way ahead of itself and thought that there was, you know, scale to the tune of billions of readers that they could um, uh, monetize and things like that. I do not believe, and and you know, Chris, what are we doing right here? Like, in theory, you we could in five years have GPT bots that could be you and me on here. I do not believe to a certain degree. Yes, you can already to this day. Um, there are things on Bloomberg that write the, the 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 stock headlines and things like that. I do not believe that we are within. Let's say but 10 I'm, years. I'm, I'm saying, 10 I'm years, asking a different question. Okay, I'm asking ahead, a different yeah. question, right? And just to, to try to like, you know, clarify the, the, the point of this, right? Which is a critique of medium. Now, I mean, may, maybe Brady doesn't like medium at all. And it's just, you know, whatever. Uh, I can accept that. Uh, but I guess I'm trying to think if you are, again, at the helm of medium, making a decision about where medium should be in three to five years time. Mm. My question is, where where well, do you sort of steer the ship and what are you betting on and what are you counting on? I hear you is, in that GPT-3 is not going to be creating amazing, brilliant content that you know wins the hearts and minds of people and does a better job than amazing writers. But, but what I'm asking not, is how do you attract the best writers if your business model is predicated on having them on your platform? But 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 we're we're talking across purposes here because okay. number one. Yep. Medium has, at least if we take Ev at his word, always been trying to find a way to get writers paid, to provide either a platform or to be a, yeah. a, an actual venue for writers, for like professional Spotify, writers, like for Spotify, real people. Right. right. Totally. Yep. Exactly. So if that's the case, then, you know, you either have to throw in the towel and, and, and be like, well, I'm not the one that can do that. Other people can do that. If what you're saying is, is well, he can't do that because the robots are coming, I don't think that that's even what he's saying. Because again, like Substack is not making that argument. Substack is like, no, it's actually the person behind the writing that is the most valuable. No, but I it's think the that, opposite that's, of the button. That's what I'm saying. Uh, okay. okay. I understand we're, we're misunderstanding each other, yes, but I think this is a probably. very important point. Like, I think this is core to what is about to happen, it relates entirely to the whole BitClout conversation, which is, you know, are 
the creators going to remain self-sovereign? And actually, I think um, Ben Thompson has a, a podcast right. about the the sovereign, the, his, self-sovereign his, writers, right? His or, or, sovereign point is like that's the, such a great term for it, too. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I'm asking. I'm asking, like, does Medium need to be a publisher and pay staff to produce content, or will self-sovereign writers use Medium as a platform tool? to monetize their audience. See, that's a different question because that's what we're talking about is are writers uh, defunct or no, 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 are no, no, publishers no, no. defunct? Let me, let me make it clear. Okay. What I'm you saying what I'm is saying? I, yeah. I, I do, but what I'm saying is if I am a GPT three bot and I create an account on medium, you know, presuming this is all happening by some puppeteer uh, or I create thousands of accounts, it seems highly unlikely to me that any rational human that has a wallet and money to spend on content will subscribe and pay for a GPT-3 bot. And so that behavior, which may be coming to Medium in the not too distant future, suddenly becomes irrelevant because those bots are unable to actually build enduring relationships with a reader or with their audience. Like Casey Newton, right? Like as an example, Casey is able to not only exist in multiple platforms, he is, as Hunter Watt calls him, calls them like a, a multi-skew creator, right? He's on Clubhouse, he's on mm-hmm. Substack, he's on The Verge, or, you know, he's got a bunch of different ways in which he's present. And, like and Kara, Kara, Kara is a better example of that because yeah, sure. not only, and she has, she has podcasts, she has newsletters, right? Right, so what I'm saying is, it seems to me that increasingly creators are going to need to be sort of you know, of the internet, very online people, and that they will charge a subscription to access them. I don't know if, you know, you sell uh, Caracoin and, you know, I buy that and now I get access to, you know, send her DMs and she responds to me, you know, because my postal stamp, you know, is worth more than yours or something. Um, or it, it gives me, again, like just like where you put out a podcast that's a limited edition to, you know, your subscri- your paying subscribers, my question again is about what medium turns into. What does it become now that we're moving into a world where individuals seem to want to have relationships with individual writers in a way where having sort of you know open signups for anybody to you know join medium. I mean, medium can like persist that, but having their own paid staff where those staff are evaluated based on the stories that they write and based on the views that they draw and the the attention that they uh, bring to the site. I guess, like, my question is that becomes like a cost center that maybe, you know, Ev just doesn't seem to see, see the necessity of in a world where self sovereign writers can choose their own platforms and build their own relationship with their readers. That's, well, that's, let, me ju- yeah, let me jump in please. here and sort of bridge these two stories. I, I feel like the original story and yes, kind of please. where we're at, because it's, it's, been, it's been interesting. So I think one of the things, like, journalists like me, one of the things that bothered us about what happened too is just, if you're going to spin up a journalistic organization, you don't have to do it forever, but he didn't give it like that much time, you know? And, and so I think that is one of the things that bothers us, but I think your point is really interesting, Chris, but if like what he did really want was this, okay, self-sovereignty is the future. Um, It would have been cool if what he would have said to his folks was like, look, I'm sorry, this isn't working out like I thought, but how about this for a deal? Not a buyout, but like, Mm-hmm. Your salary starts to fall down a little bit over time, but you also own a piece More of, of like yeah. 
you're actually yeah and like and it'll grow and so if you're awesome and you can keep building it eventually you're gonna own like 90 percent of what you generate here and we'll help you get there some of you won't get there sorry about that but like we're gonna transition to that and because you're already in in the family we're gonna put a little bit more time into helping you be one of those stars right mm-hmm. like that would have been cool love it that's that interesting cooler yeah that would have been cooler you know such <laughs> like, a missed whatever. opportunity and totally. the fact that apparently the decks have been cleared like everyone is seemingly out i've been seeing everyone say they're taking the buyouts all day so that then that that lends people to think that maybe this was uh more of the union thing or or just to a larger degree the the union thing than anything else yeah i mean if he's willing to burn all those relationships like burning tokens then yeah it does seem like there was some impasse and he was just unwilling to play ball and was like nope you know what I'm just going to do this myself and I don't need you guys anymore, which in that case, I don't know. I, I totally, I love, I love Brady, what you said. I think that that, that if it had come out that way, that would have been super interesting, would have been paving the way towards the future. And it would not have been sort of, you know, Mr. Burns, you know, release the hounds, you know, type of thing. I, I, I do too, Brady. I love that too. And, and you know what, I, I'm going to say this. I want to, I want to mm. call this room because yep, I, I, I feel like I, maybe <laughs> I didn't argue it well enough because I'm fucking tired. <laughs> it's almost 11 o'clock on a Friday. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, Brady, thanks for uh, jumping on to talk about all this. I know you were a little skeptical about even uh, doing this, so I, I much appreciate it. Totally. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is really great. Really uh, appreciate hearing from you and, and getting your Colin, John, everyone that's been listening, Chris for doing this. Yeah, thank everyone. Yeah, awesome. Oh wait, wait I don't know if you'll. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna let him up because he raises him before. Yes, uh, John Cohen, um, who according to his bio was the producer of Despicable Me, the Angry Birds movie, Angry Birds movie two, uh, a bunch of great stuff. He's got a lot of emojis in his in his bio. Um, John, you had something to say earlier. And right before we close the room, if you want to jump in, now's your chance. Oh, <laughs> I don't want to stop you. It was just, it was great listening in earlier. Thank you so Uh-oh. much for doing this. It was, it was awesome. There you go. Oh, oh, okay, you cut out a little bit. Did you just want to throw it in there real quick? No, no. Okay. Well, can, can you guys hear me now? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Oh, I, I was just. All I was saying earlier is, is this was a fascinating conversation, and thank you guys so much for doing it. I enjoy listening in. Wow. Okay. Well, perfect. Then that's a great way to end the show. Um, yeah, and John, listening. by the way, uh-huh. uh, my kids love <laughs> your, your whole thing. Despicable Me is, is uh, right at the top of our list. So, you know, I know that's a... Uh... Oh, I love ending shows with, with, with the love fest. So, uh, again, <laughs> you, uh, you've all been listening to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience um, where Brian and I go deeper on the day's tech news, try to provide a little context, a little banter and discussion. Um, today I thought was super great. I'm also exhausted, Brian, so thank you for uh, showing up for this. And we will pick this up again sometime next week. Thanks, everybody, and have a great weekend.